and along with the commissioning editor Emma Warnock from No Alibis Press, we would like to welcome you to the first No Alibis Press podcast. And with me this morning, I have the amazing Dawn Watson, and Dawn is going to say a few words now. Thank you, David. Hello. Um, my name is, yes, Dawn Watson. I'm a writer and um, a PhD student here at Queen's University in the Seamus Heaney Centre. Uh, and I have a pamphlet of poetry called The Stack of Owls is Getting Higher, and that's due out on uh, the 13th of June. That's amazing, because our first anthology of short fiction, Still Worlds Turning, is out uh, at the end of June as well. Brilliant. So, um, from poetry to prose, <laughs> how did that happen? Oh God, that's a good question. Um, it was a struggle. Um, I, I came to Queen's as a mature student. I'd worked as a journalist for, for most of my life, and uh, I took on the, uh, the undergrad degree, which was in, in creative writing. And at the time, we could do poetry, we could do prose, and we could do script writing, and we had to sort of narrow it as we went on. And I had a lot of very pained and difficult discussions with the, with the lecturers about what to drop and what not no, to drop. In poetry, if there's no pain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I've kind of held on to poetry. I did it as a master's um, here in the Seamus Heaney Centre. And I'm also doing a PhD in, in, in poetry, although it overlaps with, with prose. I, just, I, I feel like they inform each other um, as, as, uh, you know, as forms um, for me. And uh, yeah, so I'm interested in where they meet, where they connect. Well, you know, from having read the Sea View 152, we can we can safely say that they, they meet well. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about this this short story? The story, yeah, it's um, so it's set in North Belfast in the 80s, um, and and the, the the little speaker, the protagonist, um, is um is is a kid with OCD. Uh, they're in P7, um at Seaview Primary School in, in North Belfast, which is a real school that I, in fact, did go to. Um, so I was kind of, I think I was concerned, I think, in, in the story as I wrote it, um, when, I, when I talk about poetry and I talk about prose and where they intersect, I think I w- I've been quite conscious when I was writing it to um, about how, how sentences are sort of joined together and, and, and how they link with uh, sort of conjunctive words like and and them and but. And I kind of consciously left out a lot of those um, in, in the in the speaker's voice, uh, Sam Blackwood, there are a lot of sentences which kind of feel uncomfortable a little bit, I mm-hmm. think, because they sort of, th- they don't flow as you expect them to. And I kind of wanted to imitate that feeling of what of what OCD um, feels like and can feel like. Well, I, I think one of the, the most beautiful things and, and, and informative things about the story is that it, it Sam's words aren't really telling the story, whereas Sam's actions are much more informative. Yeah. You know, the, the way she um, she takes information and then reacts to it in her own way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the beautiful thing, in that um, she, has, she is telling her story through how she conveys other people speaking to her, and then what she does with her pencil or with her paper and with her drawings mm-hmm. and with her, her note-taking. Um, I, I think the phrase that came to me was that there is a studied awareness yeah. on the part of, of, of Sam. Yeah. Um, and a studied awareness that takes in the uncertainty of, 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 of being different and of also living within an environment that is full of claustrophobia and fear and myth and the idea of the bogeyman. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there was a lot of that about North Belfast in the 70s and 80s. 
yes there are there are there are a lot of a lot of different kinds of bogeyman um and i think in the story there's a few different types as well um obviously the hatchet man is the the, the main one but it mm. but yeah like you say i mean it was it's a child sort of living in an environment that is so claustrophobic and so compressed um that you that you, that you sort of need to find your own your own method of navigating it and uh and, and sort of mapping it out for yourself in a way um and i think that's what sam does and uh you know everywhere uh, they go it sort of counts the the steps and uh you know has this kind of very clear awareness of how far they are to each thing and how the, the importance of of that to them um yeah it's just it's, it's very pronounced i wanted it to, to, to be that that you see that rather mm. than sort of the character describe it because they're not so much aware of it in a way it's a kind of a it's something that's just very inherent yeah i i i'm very conscious of not wanting to to, to give too much away with regard to the story but there's also that i think what is what is quite unique about you know the the the, the, the representation of someone with ocd is that um in parts of the story you're, you're also made aware of her fears and her 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 uncertainty and, and 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 she openly talks about the the, the fear that she feels um uh, whereas it, 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 it's not always the case when you think that um in, in the, the representations of people with with, with ocd um you know th- their control um masks their inner being whereas in this this story it does come out yeah yeah it does that's true yeah, it's fantastic so um I wanted to ask you as well. Um, you know, we we mentioned a little bit briefly there about from poetry to prose. Um, are you going to continue with the prose? Are you going to write more? Yeah. Have you got more ideas? More more thoughts? Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I the short answer. Um, my PhD at the minute is is half of it is creative, and I'm writing a sort of a series of um, short stories that that, that 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 are similar to this one and and involve uh, you know a lot of sort of poetic technique within the prose mm-hmm. um but yes that they, they they sort of map uh, north belfast which is an area i spent the first sort of 12 years of my life um over in skegging avenue um and, and so i want a, a collection really that kind of reflects different characters that that kind of overlap in that area um but beyond that yeah my next ambition would be to write a novel that's the next thing i want to do um i have a sense of what i want to do for that as well um i think the prose direction is something that you know it's funny talking about it in terms of prose and poetry but just writing stories and i i, I have a lot of stories that I, that I do want to write and uh yeah the novel will be the next thing yeah and you know you, you mentioned the, the the setting being in north belfast um and uh this collection that we have produced i think one of the fantastic things about it is that we have writers from all over um we have writers from belfast from ireland from australia and writers based in new york but you know Belfast holds its own with regards to setting within this collection as well how important has you know you been how important do you think being brought up in this city has has influenced your writing yeah no it's a good question um it's taken me a very long time to kind of come to come around to writing about Belfast um for some reason It, it wasn't really naturally the sort of thing that I wanted to write about and I think I would have written anything but Belfast until recently um, and I don't know why that is um, and something about the, these these um, I've written a few stories recently based in <clears throat> in North Belfast and uh, I think it's really helped me to sort of open up to my own voice as, as a writer um, well we write about what we know and we write about where we're from and I think that that's you know we, we've just 
had a festival here recently um, where lots of authors have been talking about uh, uh, the impetus and the ideas behind you know why they write and what they write and and one thing that was almost consistently there was the idea you write about what you know because that's it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be cliched or or, or, or simplistic but it, it comes from the heart it does and I, I think like a lot of the the narrative landscape that I seem to be living in at the minute is in, is weirdly in the 80s and in childhood um I think it links into maybe just what I'm doing with my PhD which, which is it's just talking about sort of autobiographical sort of childhood stories um but it does it yeah it does yeah. um it's um yeah, it, it it you know th- th- there's a good wealth of material from from wherever you're from. You know, wherever, from yeah, I think it's hard. It's hard to sort of like we you talk about where you're from as well. It's like for me as well. I think I've lived in. When I think about where I'm from, I think about places. Uh, I think of places of emotion and 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 places of um. You know, so, sort of, you know, lived experience, but within my own mind, within my own body, and sort of, I, I think it's, and I think those could exist anywhere. You know, um. Some of the poems that I wrote in the in the upcoming pamphlet were actually set in in uh, in the deep south in South Carolina, where, where I've spent some time, yeah. and uh, that was. And what what I found is that I find it easier to write about Belfast by writing about America. I think, and what what I realized was I just wanted to write about Belfast <laughs> um, by writing the American stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like I have a lot to um, to say about about that. You know, in, in this age of, of sort of social media, um, televisual awareness, we, we, we're bombarded with images of different places. And it, it's, it's hard not to, to see that um, what is being represented and what is being shown on that, that, that screen, be it a television or a computer, um, uh, we take that for the truth. Mm. And, you know, that, 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 that is not always the best way to receive your information. No. And uh, therefore, when, when we get an opportunity or a chance for, for people to write about the place that they're from or from other places that may reflect on where they're from, um, we are getting, you know, the truth in one sense. And and, and, and honesty that is, uh, you know, beyond manipulation. Mm-hmm. It is. And I, I, I do think it's really difficult also, though, to, I think, for a lot of people in Northern Ireland to even know what their voice is. I think it's something mm-hmm. that's been shut up for a long time. For a lot of people, oh, lots um, of people are trying to tell us what our voice is. You see, I that's the so. problem, and it's not always um, to benefit ourselves; it's to benefit them. It can be difficult yeah. to to to, sh- to speak into your own experience. I mean, particularly mine. I mean, I, uh, someone like it, I grew up in, in in North Belfast, but it was it was r- relatively sheltered from um, maybe certain other areas of Belfast, where there'd be certainly a lot more sort of army presence, a lot more police presence during the troubles. Though there was some of that to an extent, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a way in the sort of the crucible of that and you kind of feel like where's the legitimacy and in, in my voice and talking about any of that and, and placing myself in any of that and um and so you kind of hesitate and I, I think you kind of write about other things but in some way I think the more people writing about their own experience even if they don't feel that it's valid in some way contributes to sort of a, a, a bigger picture um you know a, a very important bigger picture that we can all maybe try to collate together and make some sense out of what the heck happened yeah, well, you know, understanding isn't singular. Yeah, it's, it's a multiplicity, Definitely. and uh, and actually, that's 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 a, I think that's a, a a lovely metaphor for the idea of a collection of short stories. It's a multiplicity. It is, yeah, yeah. very much. Um, Har, would you like to do some reading for us? <laughs> I would love to. We do heard some you reading. reading some poems earlier, <laughs> and uh, and that was fantastic. Yeah. Um. Uh. But would you like to to read? F- I would love to your story. Yes. 
Absolutely. Thank you. This is the Sea View 152. The hatchet is gianter than you, said Tommy Hillis, and I believed him. He was standing outside Lou's corner shop in Queen Victoria Gardens. It was half past eight on a Friday morning. But how giant exactly, I asked. About this size, he said. The tip of his white high-tech trainer touched the shop's pebble-dash wall. His fingers stretched halfway up the window. I wrote, bigger than me, in my notebook. He stood up and took a Mars bar from his pocket, opened it. He threw the wrapper on the ground. It blew flat against the wall. Way gianter, he said, and took a bite. I sketched the wall and the window, drew a double-headed arrow in between. I wrote hatchet diameter underneath. Tommy walked off down the alley towards Seaview Primary School. It didn't have a view of the sea. At break time, outside the toilets, a girl, a crowd of girls were skipping with a long rope. I leaned on the red brick wall and watched Janet Chowbury finish a run of 113 skips. She could skip more than Bridget Willits, who was celebrated for her skipping. She owned two dogs, both called Biscuit. Janet joined our school last year in P6. She moved from East Belfast because her mum was told to. Janet told me five times she missed her old best friend, Sherry Fenton. Her school uniform was navy. Ours was grey. Her mum made her wear it anyway. When she joined the back of the skipping queue, I asked her what she knew about the hatchet man. Janet pushed her clear plastic glasses up her nose. She said he kept it in the hedge. In the hedge, I asked. What hedge? Front or back? The yellow one, she said. I wrote, kept in the front hedge in my notebook. Janet tugged at the waist of her blue pleated skirt. Thanks for your help, I said. You were a good skipper today. She squinted at me. Her mouth hung open slightly. I walked around the back of the school, sat on the ground beside the football pitch. It took 94 steps. I liked it was an even number. The grass was empty apart from three blackbirds. No one was allowed on the pitch. I opened my notebook, drew the hedge. It had a dip in the middle and sagged towards the pavement. It was wildly overgrown. The house was a gable end. The hedge crept around the side. It was patched in parts with fencing and turned green around the back. I wrote the colours, drew an arrow pointing to the front hedge. I wrote, hatchet kept here and an asterisk. I stared at the page, tapped it with the pencil. I tucked my hair behind my left ear. One of the birds took off, landed on the goalpost. I underlined here twice and turned the page. I fixed it flat with a crease. The bell went for the end of break. A dog outside the school gates barked my name. It went, Sam Blackwood, Sam Blackwood. I touched my forehead eight times, put the notebook in my backpack. It was denim and had planets on it. No one had ever seen the hatchet man. Everyone knew he was there. He lived almost exactly halfway down Seaview Drive. His house was on the left as you came from Premier Drive. I had to walk past it every day to get to school. Everyone always made sure to stay on the right. People would tell you, stay on the right. If you're on your own, you'd run fast past it. If people were in a gang, sometimes they played dares to see who would go closest. Big boys from Castle High. 
After school, I went to Lou's to get a curly whirly. I went there at least two times every day. If we needed bread, my mum would say, go get a loaf, tell Lou to put it down. If there was a queue, I'd always rejoin at the back to make sure nobody heard me. At the counter, Lou would never speak. She'd take her pencil from behind her ear, jot the amount in her book with the grid squares. Then she'd look over my head at the person behind me, smile at them, say hello, take their money. Our tick list went over all the pages. I wondered if she'd ever get angry. Getting bread made my heart beat very fast. Janet's sister Heather just got a job there. It meant she knew about the list. That made two people, apart from me, my mum and dad. I set the curly-whirly on the counter. Heather flipped to our most recent entry and made a note of the price with a stub pencil. I counted 26 plastic tubs of sweets on the shelf behind her. Midget gems, chocolate, floral gums, strawberry bonbons, chocolate raisins, chewing nuts. Without looking up, she said, By the way, did you hear Henry Rooney touch the hatchet man's hedge? Henry had three older brothers and once kissed Shauna Langley in the park. He wore a karate kid sweatband and was expelled from Castle High for hitting the teacher on the head with a typewriter. His dad was in jail for shooting a man dead in the waterworks. I put the curly-whirly in my coat pocket, took out my notebook. When? Yesterday, she said. Which hedge, front or back? The yellow one. Was he seen? Was he seen, says you? Well, it was after school, she said. Henry was kept in detention by Mrs Clayton, so it was really dark. Andrew Wilson dared him. Henry, Henry was all, aye, come on then. There was nobody about, so he crossed Seaview Drive. A woman in a green coat handed Heather the right money for a vita. Anyway, he walks over the street and doesn't he reach out to touch the hedge? Heather straightened a box of 10p mix-ups with the tip of her index finger. I'd been electrocuted. Then what happened? What happened, says you? Well, said Heather. All the fucking windows opened at once. They all flew up in a big slam. All of them, and the front door as well. She rolled the pencil between her finger and thumb. Her eyes were like licorice wheels. It was a trap. Did the hatchet man come out? I wrote TRAP in capital letters. Lou shouted from the back store for Heather to restock the fridge. She dropped the pencil. It was attached to a string and disappeared behind the counter. No, she whispered. The hatchet man stayed in the hall. Henry said his eyes were black and his head reached the ceiling. She picked up a crate of silver-topped milk bottles. The hatchet had blood all over it, she said. Andrew shut himself. The two of them ran like fuck. When I opened the door to leave the shop, a tiny bell jangled. I sat on the wall outside. I drew a house with an open door, then a man with a hatchet filling the frame. I scribbled in his eyes with heavy pencil. I thought about Janet's statement. Hatchet inside the house, I wrote. Another one in the hedge? I drew three question marks the same size as the door. I closed the book, reopened it, traced over the question marks again. Then I closed the book and went home. I lived 111 steps away in flat 35A, Skegganil Avenue. It was a big box of brown built for old people. We were packed in there by the housing executive when my dad got sacked from the shipyard. He worked in the pencil department and tried to burn down a grain store. I heard, him, I heard mum tell someone on the phone we were going to lose our house on Shore Road. Then we moved to the flat. 
My dad never went out after that. We had lots of boxes of pencils. There was a concrete yard out the back. Red metal washing line poles are everywhere. There's never any clothes on them. They stand there out of place like trees on the moon, like telephone masts in a duck pond. A sprung metal gate swings shut when men come to the flats at night. There is a bow-legged trellis. I don't invite my friends after school. I have a page at the back of my notebook for things I find in the yard. I go out when my mum and dad shout. Last night, there were eight light-bleached beer cans, 239 small green cubes of broken windscreen glass, one star bar wrapper and an upside-down pram. There was an empty wet paper bag as well, falling apart. It didn't feel complete, but I noted it anyway. Wrote, pick and mix, with a question mark. Could have held anything, though crumbed ham or grapes. It was impossible to know. I drew two circles around pick and mix. Someone had wound cassette tape around the poles, brown glossy threads. I didn't know how to categorise them. I drew a picture. Underneath I wrote cassette tape tape. It went foot foot in the wind. Monday mornings were worst. It was hard to be in the world again after spending the weekend pretending you weren't. I slept in my school uniform, so I only had to wash my face. It was ten steps from my bed to the bathroom. I flattened my hair with water. The door of my parents' bedroom was open. Mum curled on the floor. Her white dressing gown was untied. It was seven steps to the living room. I edged past my dad, sleeping on the sofa. He'd been sick on the carpet. There were eleven open cans of striped beer. Two had been crumpled up. One was sitting on the TV. I looked inside. It had a cigarette butt floating in it. It took me a long time to walk anywhere. When I went to school, I left early. I had to look at my shoe soles each time I took a step to make sure I hadn't stood in dog's dirt. It was hard in autumn when there were leaves. They hid everything. I took a step, looked at my sole, took a step, looked at my sole. That morning it took me 113 steps to get to Lou's, two longer than was okay. I ran back home. On the second attempt I made 111. At least two of those were jumps. I pulled my eyelids down as far as they'd go and counted to 30. Lou put down two dairy milk. Seaview Drive is long. It's 379 steps to the school steps. After 152... A dog ran out in front of me. It darted from behind a parked car and disappeared into the hatchet man's garden. The house was dark blue in the early light. Seven crows sat on the telephone wires, one on a lamppost. The, bro- the bulb was broken, glowing red. All the others threw yellow circles. I went to walk on, but had forgotten my step count. I thought about Janet's glasses. They were really big. I wondered, was the dog okay? I could see a hatchet in the front hedge. The yellow leaves were thin. I stuck two fingers down my shirt collar and pulled, took a deep breath. I held it for 15 seconds. A bird darted over my head in a line. It looped up and over the roof. I waited for the windows to slam open. A sparrow fled a bush next door. It skittered onto the grey guttering. The windows stayed closed. I walked across the road and stood in front of the hedge. I saw the golden retriever lying on a flattened patch of grass 
in the overgrown front garden. Its muzzle was grey. I whispered, Do you live here? It didn't reply. I touched my forehead eight times, then walked up the path. One, two, three, four. I crouched beside the dog. I took a dairy milk from my pocket, broke a piece off and set it beside the animal. I lift, it lifted its head to look, then lay back down. The crow on the lamppost flew off with a yawp. I heard my dad shout, Sam, come back here now. Come here now. I heard my mum shout, Sam, stop writing that fucking book. Go and get me a loaf of bread. I heard Lou shout, Sam, put that milk down and get out of my shop. Don't come back till you pay me what you owe. I heard Heather shout, Sam, you're so poor, I feel sorry for you. I pushed open the letterbox, through the flap. I saw woodchip walls and a brown phone chair. A very tall man sat on it. He was sharpening a hatchet on a grindstone. The sparks lit up the hall, bright. He asked me, how many steps from there to here? All the windows and doors slammed open. All the dogs were barking. I looked from my feet to his. I think twelve. Then I was nine and the man was my dad in his blue workman overalls. He was telling me a joke. Why are graveyards so popular, he said. Because people are dying to get into them. His eyes filled up when he laughed. Then I was five and the man was my mum. She was holding my hands above my head, dancing to Eddie Grant in our sunlit shore road kitchen, her blonde hair a wild halo of light. I pressed my hands over my ears, counted my heartbeat. On the street, the lamp post flickered and went out. The school bell rang. The sun came up. I started my steps from one. The Noella Vice podcast is produced in a small back room in the Seamus Heaney Centre. Still World's Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noella Vice Press with thanks to Ruby Colley for her music.